Lights, camera, action. Today we have the great veteran actor with us, John Shea. Acted in over 91 feature films and television shows. I first got to know John Shea when I was a, a, a film student in 1982 when I saw him act in the feature film Missing, directed by the legendary director Costa Gravis and co-starring Sissy Spacek and Jack Lemmon. Little did I know that 16 years later I'd get the chance to work with this man who I uh, admired on screen as a 20-year-old film student. And here I am today doing a podcast, Conversations with Charlie, with the great artist, John Shea. Welcome. Charlie, really happy to be with you, man. You know, I'm a fan of yours, too, as you know. <laughs> That's so nice. So, you know, we talked a lot before this about about what makes, you know, what makes being able to hang out with someone interesting, because that's what these podcasts are, you know. I mean, our conversation podcasts are, are a chance to spend time with someone in a way that really is not available. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and it goes out to people who uh, uh, perhaps are interested in the film business and also people who are aspiring to become filmmakers and also those who are veterans and our old friends that want to uh, see their their old buddy uh, uh, talk on a show and it, the audience is so wide and so interested but i think we start with with uh, uh, uh with with uh, uh, i think an important launching point which for me at least uh, uh is not early life but rather uh, uh yale drama school and uh and and your experience at how your creative journey uh, 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 really began. I mean, in a sense, even though, of course, it began before that. So talk to me about the stories, the story of Yale Drama School and the period you were there under Robert Brewstein and uh, uh, you're one of your, I believe Meryl Streep was a classmate. I mean, this was a very fertile time uh, 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 to be uh, at that program. And uh, you had graduated Bates College where you had done undergraduate work as a, a theater actor and other, otherwise, but, and we'll bounce around, but hit me up with this first. Let's start with yeah, it. Uh, look, man, I, you know, at Bates, you know, you like the roads don't go from Lewiston, Maine to New York city. I mean, you can't actually get there psychologically. So one day I was sitting in the library and I read about something, a review in the New York times about Yale drama school students working at the Yale rap. And I was like, yeah, wh what's that? And I, I wrote away for their catalog in the days before internet and they sent it to me and I drove, you know, whatever it is, about six, seven miles down in a snowstorm in uh, January. I was the first person to audition that year out of 1,200 people that they auditioned. And I walked onto the stage and I did my serious piece, you know, a piece of Shakespeare. Uh, I've actually played Jimmy Porter actually in Look Back in Anger and I did that piece and then I did a comic piece from Shakespeare. And then I was about to leave the stage and they said, wait a minute. Um, what about your, your improv? What's that? They said, well, we don't tell you about that. That's why it's called improv. So we want you to meet Steve, who's coming across the stage right now. So you and Steve are going to improv something. And I said, okay, Steve, what do you want to do? And he said, 
uh, no, this is your audition, dude. I mean, I'm in the school. You tell me what you want. And I said, okay. They said, 15 seconds, Mr. Shea, 15. So I'm like, oh, my God. Um, all right, two guys, two brothers, the Wright brothers. Um, it's Kitty Hawk. We're launching the first airplane. And I, um, we do this little improv, and I say, all right, Orville, on three. I'll push you off, and like, good luck here, buddy. And boom, I, I go to push him. I, I say, I'll pull down on the, on the propeller, and you pull up. And I, on one, two, and on three, I do a full squat in the middle of a bare stage. We're just improving, miming the whole thing. And my pants split, Charlie, up the crotch. I'm not wearing any underwear. And uh, I am fully exposed to the universe uh, and to the seven people from the Yale Drama School who are auditioning me. And, and I look down, and they, of course, start laughing. Uh, but I hold on to the, to the improv, and I sort of like a duck waddle across the stage with my hands over my crotch and I push um, you know the plane off and I'm good luck Orville good luck you know waving goodbye and they go all right Mr. Shea come come down here do you have any questions and I said yeah do you have um, you know costume department because uh, my pants are you know clear seriously split so I'm what I want to say to, to, to every actor is that this is how my career started, you know, like with a pratfall and a joke and a sight gag, okay? And, and a year later when they, well, they, they called me about four, year, four months later on my birthday in April, I'd say, you're in. And when I got to the school in the fall, I said to Robert Brewstein, who was the dean of the school, I said, I, I heard that you saw 1,200 people across this country. You picked 12. Why did you pick me? He said, because we laughed about you all the way across the country when, you know, because that was the most ridiculous audition anyone's ever seen. And, and I said, that was it, just the sight gag? And they said, no, you stayed in character. That was the test, you know? So when I want to, you know, if we're encouraging actors, you know, who might want to be seeing this, uh, you know, your podcast, I would say that, you know, take anything that comes to you and try to just stay with it, you know? That I think the secret here and the lesson I learned was that by just going with what destiny offered at that moment. I was, you know, a hippie with worn out jeans and I didn't, I, you know, I was going commando, no underwear and bang, it just happened you know, by accident. But it turned out to be the key that led me into the school. And then, became, you know, I became an actor at the school and I, and I was casting all, most of the leads in, in that first year. And honestly was, but during that first year, I saw all the great minds that were around Yale at the time, and they were unavailable to the actors. So I, I said to Robert Brewstein, I said, I gotta quit. He said, what do you mean, <laughs> what do you mean? And I said, well, look, I mean, there's, you know, Ming Cho Lee, the greatest set designer at the Metropolitan Opera teaching set design. I can't study with him. I can't study with Jerzy Kaczynski teaching playwriting or Arthur Pence, Sidney Lumet, George Roy Hill teaching film acting over the, and he said, all right, you can't quit, but I'll tell you what, why don't you become a director? So in my second and third year, I became a director. And, and that was carte blanche. So the deal was that I worked in a cabaret with Joe Grafasi and Meryl Streep and Mark Lynn Baker and all these great people. But I had, that I, I, as a director, I was free, Charlie, to, uh, to, to work with all these great people. And they were my mentors and they inspired me, including Robert Brewstein, I have to say it was fantastic. But, and I, I had to work for him in the rep. But wasn't that also part of that, part of the shift that took place that you got a chance to, to also become part of the program with, with Arthur Penn and Sidney Lumet as well, right? That, that, that shift, 
also because it it allowed you to be also part of that that I guess what was the you have to explain what it was I'm I'm curious. Okay, so the, in the drama school it was just pure drama. Okay, it's a theater and in its purest form, studying all the great plays. But really, Robert Brustein and and the deans before him and the deans that came after, um, it, it's about the purity of the art form. Okay, so the film is was not considered to be a pure art form, and and actors were not only discouraged, they were forbidden to, to work over in the art school, which was next door, where the film department was. So it wasn't connected in any way, psychologically, spiritually, in any way, with the drama school. So I trespassed. I had to sneak over there. And then once he, as an actor, but then once he made me a, a director, I was like, all right, now I could do it. And I did go over and I worked, and I got to work with Arthur Penn. Now, Arthur Penn, was one of my great heroes because Arthur Penn had directed Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. And Bonnie and Clyde changed my life. Yeah. You know, because I saw that, I was like, oh my God, that's what I want to do. I want to be on the screen. I want to work with guys like that, you know? Yeah. And then, uh, and then you, you, you acted in the theater, you were directing at Yale, and 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 it was an, a number of years you're, that you were there in the program, the full the full stream before you moved to New York. What what was the what were the steps like going from Yale to acting in the theater? Because you went to act in the theater in New York from Yale, right? Correct. But every once in a while, we'd have an emissary from the front lines, like a professional actor from New York who would be coming, or from London, who would come to work at the professional company at the Yale Rep. Remember, the Yale Drama School was a conservatory, a training school for the professional company, and we served apprenticeships there. And one of the guys that came in my third year was a young actor who's about five or six years older than me, and his name was Christopher Walken. And Chris oh, wow. Walken uh, came to play Caligula, and, and I was the assistant director of Caligula, so I got this is the Yale rep at the Yale rep. Great, wow! And, and he was starring as Caligula, and I got to hang out with him for a month and watch him create his performance of Caligula on stage at the Yale rep, but in the rehearsal rooms. So it would just be the director, me, Chris, and somebody else, sometimes for four or five hours at a time, as he would slowly but surely hone this character and the stuff that he did. And then later, because I was also an actor, I was a spear carrier on stage with him through the whole run of the play. And so I stood with literally with a spear with like a Roman costume on behind the emperor's throne. And I watched Chris Walken create that character. And it, this is a great play by the French writer Albert Camus. And so all I can tell you is that Chris Walken is a genius. And what he did completely inspired me. And he was the most generous actor to a young actor. Uh, and uh, I, I, all I can say is that he was another role model for me because I saw what, he, what it took to be great. It took constant diligence, constant reading, constant rehearsal, constantly digging. If the director would suggest something, he'd try what the director suggested, but then he would go further than that. And he was never inhibited he used his intuition to inform everything and so when the director said well you know 
at a certain point, Chris, you know, you're, you are Caligula, mate. And, and, the, and the director was English. He said, you, you are, you know, you've got to kill your girlfriend, Chris. Uh, so it says in the script, you know, you, you could stab her. You want to cut her throat, Chris. And Chris Walker was like, no, man, I don't want to cut her throat. That's been done before. I want to find a new way to do it. So one day in rehearsal, Chris Walken sat behind the woman who was playing his lover, right? A great English and Canadian actor named Nancy Wickwire. And she had a long, long blonde wig on. And he started braiding her wig, braiding it, braiding it, loving her, caressing her, fondling her, kissing her neck, drinking a glass of wine. And slowly but surely, he took that, braid that he made it and he wrapped it around her neck and he said remember Sasonia, that you too you too you too must die and he <clears throat> snapped her neck and and there was a crack sound that someone would make off stage and the audience screamed as she twisted like this and convulsed and slipped out from between his legs and slid across the floor dead and then Chris Walken walked like a crab backwards until he got a goblet of red wine and then picked it up with his teeth and drank it like this with the red wine running down his face and onto his white emperor's tunic like blood. Love it. And I saw the audience's reaction like, oh my God, he is insane and he is great. And I thought, yeah, he is. And I know why. Okay, so that's my Chris Walken story. So from, from Yale, I went to New York on fire, both as an actor and a director, because I saw what was possible because of the great people that I, saw, that I met, you know? Yeah. And then, and then uh, your, your first opportunities in New York, when you came to New York, because you, you went straight to New York, we're in the theater uh, with Joe Papp's public theater and the, the Chelsea, right? And, 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 Talk a little bit about the early the, the early moments for you in theater in New York. Okay, I'll just say this. Again, I, I had uh, good luck on my side. I had a kind of real fate, lucky, fateful thing that happened, like uh, ripping my pants, you know, like uh, on the stage to get into drama school. And, and, and that was this. Yale... Um, uh, you know, graduated three uh, guys uh, about five or six years before me, and they had started a theater company at the at the um, called the Chelsea Theater at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And the Chelsea Theater, w along with the Public Theater, was the hottest theater in New York in those well, days. So the Chelsea Theater was at BAM at that time, was the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and you did that before you ended up with Joe Papp, right? I'm sorry, you froze up with me a little bit there. Yeah, I, I know you're freezing up with me a little bit too, but that's okay. It's maybe it's cold somewhere. Um, so, when I was at the Chelsea Theater, I, I was my 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 class at Yale was scouted by these guys who had graduated before me and started their own theater called the Chelsea. The head of that theater, the artistic director, was a guy named Bob Calvin, Robert Calvin. Rob, Robert Calvin hired me because I was a young director to be the assistant director on all of the plays at the Chelsea Theater, which was at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, right? Right. So one of the first plays I did was with Hal Prince. And I, and I was the assistant director for Hal Prince and Leonard Bernstein on a production of Candide that they did. But then very shortly thereafter, I was reading opposite. I was auditioning the 
actors that were coming in to do a play called Dawn Song about the American Indians. And Calvin saw me reading with these actors and he's like, dude, what are you doing in this directing program? You're an actor. And I said, no, Bob, I, I, I do both. And he said, well, you're fired. As my casting director, assistant director, I want you to read the script, take this home tonight and tell me what you think of it. And he gave me a script called Yentl the Yeshiva Boy by Isaac Bersheva Singer. He had adapted it with a woman named Leah Naplin. And I came in the next day and I auditioned for him. And I auditioned with five other, 500 other guys. And in the end, I got the part. And Tova Felshu played opposite me. This play opened off Broadway at the Chelsea Theater. The New York Times came and raved about it. God love Clive Barnes, you know? And so did everybody else. And Cheryl Crawford, who had started the actor's studio with Lee, with Lee Strasberg, and the group theater with Harrison, came to see the final performance and said, I want to take the show to Broadway. So a year later, I mean, about six months later, we opened on Broadway, and suddenly I was 26 years old, and I was starring on Broadway in Yentl. And Yentl was a hit. It ran for a year. I won awards. Everybody came to see it. And then I was launched as a professional actor in New York. Fantastic. And then uh, what, year, what, what year are we at now at that point? Is this... 1976. 76. 76. So it was a number of years before the, 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 the story that, that you told me that, that uh, uh, begins with the theater that I find absolutely fascinating as a segue when you told me that, that, that you were you were cast into the film Missing because Costa Gravis saw you in the theater and actually never casted you in a casting session. He said, you've already done the casting session. I think that's, I mean, that, that's an outrageous story. Uh, yeah, I, well, well, Charlie, so I always stayed in New York because I was trained for the theater, you know, and I did a lot of plays off Broadway, on Broadway. Um, and, and I had done a couple of theater uh, film pieces at that point, but basically what happened, Costa Gavras flew in from Paris, again, my good luck, flew in from Paris to cast Missing at Universal Pictures. And when, when he arrived in JFK, he had a limousine, you know, a car waiting for him. And in the back seat, you remember how the cars are, they always have the daily newspapers. There was the New York Times. Well, it happened to be the day after a play that I was starring in at the Manhattan Theater Club opened, a play called American Days by Stephen Polyakov. And all I can tell you is that there were three rave reviews, again. So he got to um, Universal and he said to the casting director, Walina Sita, I want to go see this young actor. You got the, all these reviews are amazing. So he went to see me that night at the Manhattan Theater Club. And uh, the next day, Walina Sita called my agents at, at ICM and said, Costa Garvis wants to meet John Shape. So I went in and hung out with him. And he said, um, so you can have this part. Uh, I've got a new film I'm going to do. Jack Lemmon wasn't even cast yet. He said, but Sissy Spacek's going to play your wife, and you can have it under one condition. Universal had greenlit this picture. It was going to be Costa Garvis' first, first American film. He had won the Academy Award, as you know, for Z or Z with Yves Montaigne. And... and um, Sid Sheinberg, who was the head of Universal Pictures, had seen Z, loved it, and thought that Costa Gavras would be the right guy to direct Missing. 
Um, and so he hired him to write the screenplay. And so Costa Gavras and, and another act, a director, a uh, writer later came in to tweak it a little bit named Donald Stewart, but really it was Costa's script, right? Anyway, so he, he says to me, uh, you, you have the part. You, you're going to play the guy that's missing. And Sis, uh, Jack Levin wasn't cast in that part at that time yet, but Sissy Spacek, he said, is going to play your wife and you got to come to Mexico City. But look, you can have this part under one condition, which is that you have not appeared in any other films. And I said, well, I have a problem with that. And he said, what's that? I said, I've done three films. And he said, tell me about those films. And I said, well, I did a biblical epic with Madeline Stowe. I played in a film called The Nativity. She played Mary, I played Joseph. He said, was that for television? I said, yes. He said, television films don't count. I said, okay, good. He said, what else have you done? I said, I just did a film in England with Helen Mirren, uh, a, a film noir, a thriller called Hasi. And Helen Mirren and I star in this film. And he said, English films don't count. No. Okay. <laughs> right? <laughs> he said, what's the third one? I said, I just did a film with Jill Clayburgh, Michael Douglas, and Charles Grodin, in which Joe Clayburgh dates three guys at the same time. It's called It's My Turn. And it was produced at Warner Brothers by Ray Stark. And he said, what happened with that one? That's Hollywood. I said, Costa, I found out last week that they cut my character out of the film. He said, what? I, he said, yeah, Ray Stark told me that they tested the film. And the audience said, any woman who's sleeping with three guys at the same time is a slut. <laughs> That's fantastic. And we got to lose one guy, so let's lose Shay. Yeah. So they cut me out of the film. And so he said, all right, so you got the part. And that's how I got missing. That's crazy. Yeah. I had told my family, my friends, my agents, Joe Papp, everybody, because I was doing a play at the public theater at the time. He let me go to Hollywood to, to go meet them out there. But all I can say, and to, to go shoot it, um, but I was crushed when I found out that they cut my character out. And, and this is another lesson for all your actors, directors out there. The, the things that seem the most crushing are, could be blessings in disguise. You know what I mean? I, I was cut out of the film and I thought, oh my, I must be horrible. But no, it, honestly, I believe that the universe was saving me for missing. And for Costa Gavras, who a month or so later showed up in New York and offered me that part. So, you know, that feeling where... And the way well, you he found you, I mean, he, he, didn't, he didn't have a plan to meet you. It just happened through, it happened organically. I mean, literally organically. He that's right. He just happened to show up the day after the play opened and he read the review. It's nuts. I love the story. And then the stories uh, uh, of the film itself, we're going to jump around a little bit to some other stuff, but I, I, wanna, I want you to tell the story uh, because I'm, you know, and I think anyone who studied film is a Costa Gravis fan, I hope, because of the, the, the incredible work that he, he, he did, it, not on, on all of his films, but, but the, uh, the way in which he set up you and Sissy Spacek in an apartment, I believe, tell, tell that story about Mexico City and how he set the stage for you to, to really to be husband and wife, but to be in, I guess, what would be sort of a, kind of a dangerous feeling situation on some level to feel like you were, because the, the film takes place in, in, in Chile, right? Correct. 
Mexico City. Yeah. Yes, we couldn't go to Chile because uh, Pino, Augusto Pinochet was still in power, and right. we were on a hit list. And later we were on a hit list, and I've never been able to go to Chile. I was told by the by the CIA, you know, that my life would be at risk while Pinochet was in power. Now I could go, um, but, but I'll just but say that at that time, in that era, even in that era, you would be when you did missing. You were uh, it was obviously something that 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 exposed their world. So yeah, you would you were you were persona non grata in that era. Yeah. Correct, correct. So no, you know. Anyway, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't shoot in Chile, so Costa had shot a film called State of Siege in Chile, so he knew Santiago and Chile really well, so he was able to recreate it in Mexico. Anyway, we shot, had to shoot the film in Mexico. We shot Mexico City for Santiago, and we shot Acapulco for Viña del Mar, which is where the coup in Chile was um, actually fomented. So anyway, Costa has, has written the screenplay. And so when we get down to Mexico City, it's just Sissy and Costa and I at this point. We go a month before we're going to start shooting. And he says, I want you to come and rehearse with me. So he said every day, and he, he, we got in a car, and he took us out to a neighborhood in the middle of Mexico City, which is, by the way, 30 million people. And it was this rough and tumble neighborhood, but it would be very much like the one that our characters would have lived in in Santiago. And when we got to this house in the middle of this Mexican neighborhood, the set dressers had already been there and the prop people, it was completely dressed and ready to shoot, even though we were a month away. And he said, I want you and Sissy to come here every day for the next couple of weeks. I'm going to drop you off in the morning and I'm going to come back at night. And I want you to live the life as if you would live if you were really husband and wife. And if you were really uh, young artists, which is what they were, um, you know, trying to explore uh, life in Mexico, in, in Chile. So we would, uh, first thing, and then the car would drive away. And goodbye, Costa. Um, and we would say, well, let's check the refrigerator and, you know, there'd be some food and we'd get food the prop department had put in, but, let's, but we, we're out of coffee, let's go shopping. And we'd get to know slowly but surely the neighborhood. And at the end um, of every day, Costa Gavras would show up with the script supervisor and he would say, what did you do today? Tell me a story. And I'd say, well, Costa, we did this, you know, we went to... Uh, we went to get groceries and we saw a woman, an old woman who was run over by a bus. He said, well, tell me about that. I said, well, the bus driver ran her over and just to make sure she was dead, he then backed the bus over her intentionally to, to kill her. And, and Sissy burst into tears. And, 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 but the people in the street seemed to agree with the bus driver that that was a good thing for him to do because he had five children and, and, and didn't want to get fired and lose his job. And, and the old lady that he ran over was an old woman. Her life was over. So it was like, welcome to Mexico. It was very, very interesting. And he said, okay, that story is very much like it's what it's like in Chile during the coup. Because remember, they, they killed 30 thousand people in the soccer stadium there they executed them against a firing squad okay 30,000 people and my character uh ended up being buried in a in a concrete wall and and you know it so it's it, what happened was that he would set up improvisations with sissy and i and he would say okay john sissy he'd say you go into the bedroom 
and, and you go pack your bags because you're out of here. You don't want to stay a minute longer and, you're, and, and you want to go to the airport right now. And then he'd take me into the kitchen. And he'd say, John, make her her favorite soup. Make her tell some jokes. You don't want her to go. You want to stay because this is exciting. You're a young journalist as well, Harvard trained journalist. So you got to find out what's going on. And so, so he would give us opposite intentions in our, in our improvisation. And then we would improv for the next hour or two. And I have to say, Charlie, it was amazing. And then the script supervisor was taking notes in longhand. And then Costa would say, okay, that was fantastic. Thank you very much. I'll see you tomorrow. And then, well, let's go home. And then we'd go home. We'd all have dinner. They'd drop us off in the morning. So this is the way the beginning of the film started. Uh, and, the, and when I said, so why are we doing this? He said, because, John, I, I've never believed what I wrote in, when I was writing this in Paris. I knew that there was a real relationship between a husband and wife that the actors could help me create on screen. And that's exactly what you're doing here for me. And so that was his process. And it was a complete illumination for me as a young aspiring director, because obviously I was working with an Academy Award winning director and extremely conscientious and generous person. So I have to say Costa Gavras became you know, a, a godfather for me and a mentor for me in Hollywood and still is. So that, so that experience of, of doing that was it, was, it was literally before principal photography began. Was that in conjunction with, with rehearsals or, or, or did you go after that two-week stint? Was that only a two-week stint on top of rehearsals or did you go right into how what was his method what was it like working this is an interesting story because you 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 were doing this as part of carving out the the what what the relationship would be and even the dialogue and the connection and and kind of creating a foundation and a building block but there was a script and there was a narrative to, to 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 follow that he was about to direct did he do yeah. that there was, there was, to this yeah there was a great script it's just for costa the beginning of the script didn't work that is when the young couple got back together and realized that they were in danger you know he needed to correct those scenes and the improvs that we for those several weeks allowed him to rewrite that section of the film wow uh, and it, yeah and it worked really well after that point, we shot for three months. And right. then we, so we spent two months in Mexico City and we spent a month in Acapulco. And I have to say that even though I wasn't in the scenes, Costa Gavras took me under his wing and let me stay by him by the camera at all times. Right, so your on the days when Jack very, your, your character is gone very early on when Jack shows up, you've gone missing. And, uh, and you stayed with the production throughout that period to watch Costa work. Was that what you're saying? I'm asking. Correct. Yeah, 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 which is amazing. Yeah, no, I asked him, I said, Costa, I said, do you mind if I stay? He said, no, you can't leave Mexico because I want you part, there are other scenes that, he, that I shot that are flashback scenes that were woven through the whole shooting of those in those three months, of course. including the scenes that we shot at the end in Acapulco. So there's no way that I could go, but on my days off, which were many, um, 
I spent my days on the set next to Costa, next to the A camera, and watched him direct. Outrageous. And he let, and then he introduced me. And then the other thing, excuse me uh, for interrupting, yeah, is yeah. that because we were shooting in Mexico City, the film was being the film was being sent every day to Paris to be developed. Right. He said to a lab so in Paris. How fascinating! And instead of having dailies, we had weeklies. Mm. And then we would all go to the hotel in Mexico City, and we would sit there breathlessly waiting to see how it looked and and i the whole cast were invited and the crew and we sat in a big conference room with a big screen set up and a projector charlie and it wasn't technicolor it was uh yeah pathé somebody like that right um anyway well, there are a number of we, uh, classic it was labs. amazing there are a number of classic labs in paris that were standalone independent labs that were not part of the 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 big world of of large brands you know, Eclair was one, um, you know, uh, there were a, a, a number, LTC, uh, there were labs that were based in Paris that, that had no other uh, uh, operation anywhere else except in the city of Paris. That's probably where he sent his stuff, I would guess. That's right. And because he was used to, he was used to their, yeah, he was used to their timers, right? So he would be on te long telephone conversations with the lab, uh, doing the color correction, all that stuff in the beginning. So we would get color-corrected dailies, oh, which were really great. Yeah. Wonderful. And then you told me a story about... And then he let me sit in. Yeah. Go ahead. You know, he let you sit in on the, in the editing or in the... You're no, in the editing. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, I, you know, the old-fashioned with a steam back and, you know, cutting old-fashioned 35 millimeter film, it was fantastic to learn how to do that. Yeah. So he, did he cut in Paris? In Mexico City. Oh, he cut in Mexico City. So he cut, he cut in it. Okay, no. that's great. Which makes sense. He, he did cut a rough cut. He, he cut while we were shooting. Right, cut while you were shooting. And then your, yeah. the editor was on location with you throughout production, as should be. And then, uh, and then it wrapped the editing room, moved back home with him, I would guess. Yeah. yeah. Correct. Great. Correct. You told me a story about, uh, uh, about Jack in a car going from Mexico City to to as it where the what was the Acapulco. desert Acapulco, yeah it's uh, th this will uh, sit with me for the rest of my life so uh, do tell yeah yeah well, I mean I have to say Jack Lemon uh, also became like a Hollywood Godfather to me because even though I was I, we had no scenes together he said. I want you to hang out with me through the whole film. And so he brought poker chips down from Hollywood. He loved to play poker and he loved to drink tequila. So every night he would have me and the other actors and the crew back to his hotel room and we would play poker and drink tequila. Wonderful. And so finally, after Mexico City, uh, he was the most generous guy that ever lived, Jack Lemmon. I'll tell you another story. One day he had all the actors who had ever played his sons on stage and various films to his house in Beverly Hills to have dinner with his real son, Chris Lemon, because he wanted his film and theater sons to meet his real son. And fantastic. We had a massive dinner party with about 15 guys, and it was fantastic. Oh, my God. So Jack was just one of these great guys, and he was married to Felicia Farr, who was an excellent actress herself, and she was done there the whole time. And they had to drive from Mexico City with a driver over the mountains to Acapulco to start shooting. 
And one night, while they're driving over the mountains, uh, the Sierra Madres, whatever they are, um, in the middle of going through a village, they, they hit something and they didn't know and the driver got out and uh, Felicia started to get out of the car and he said, no, you know, senora, no, 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 no. And it turns out that the driver had hit a young girl and killed her in the car. And Jack got out of the car and he told me the story. Um, he said it was so horrible. And the family came rushing out. There were like eight or nine children and the mother and the father. And the mother was crying. They lifted the little girl and they carried away. But the father went to the driver and the driver said, senor, vene aquí. And he took him to the trunk and he popped the trunk. And, and in the trunk was Jack's luggage, but also was an attache case, which he popped open with the combination and handed the father of the young girl that had just been killed a stack of crisp American $100 bills. Uh, Jack estimated there was, you know, like five or $10,000 uh, in, in, in um, compensation, you know, something that you could never possibly compensate for. But to say, I'm so sorry, there was an accident. She ran in front of the car. Uh, they're playing with the kids. And uh, the father said, Senor, you know, God bless you and, and, and thank you. Uh, we will uh, take care of my daughter in the church and give her a problem. But this money, I want you to know, will help my family, you know, for, for the next, you know, many, many years. And, and we so appreciate it because many people would drive through this village, hit my daughter, and keep on going. Amazing stories. We could talk about that for the next uh, several hours. But but you had mentioned to me uh, your experience with Madeline, uh, 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 was it Madeline Stowe, I believe it, it was, in Nativity, and then also working with the iconic Helen Mirren in Hussey, which actually both come before uh, Missing. Um, are, are, are there stories you wish to share there? I mean, we're going to jump around to different parts of your life, but, but, but those are two things. And I, and I know that we're lingering a little long there because we're going to get, you know, to Lex Luthor and all that other stuff. But let's do this early stuff first because it's so juicy. Well, uh, look, I, I'll just say that Madeline Stowe as a young actress. We, you know, we were the two American stars every all the other actors were English and and from Spain because we were shooting um, down in uh, the southwest corner of Spain where they shot the good, the bad, and the ugly and all the spaghetti and living in this little uh, Spanish town. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, Cabo San Lucas? No, no, no. I, anyway, it'll come to me in a second. But all I can tell you is that one night we were shooting. This is the kind of things that happen. And I want to tell your young actors as well that are watching. Uh, the, you know, you're out there uh, in the desert and you're shooting at night and there's a scene that the writer has written that a mountain lion attacks Joseph and Mary and their donkey at their campfire on their way to Bethlehem where the baby's supposed to be born in this kind of biblical epic, right? And so the question is, how do you get the mountain lion to attack you? And uh, so they've flown a, a lion in from Madrid and this lion uh, sounds pretty ferocious. He's in a cage that they've got on the edge of the, of the jungle. We can't, I mean, I mean, of the desert, or this little oasis. We can't really see it. But all I can tell you is that at one point, there's a scream, blood-curdling scream, and the crew starts shinning up 
all of the uh, coconut palm trees and Madeline is whisked away and I'm told run because the lion has gotten loose and and he's actually coming to eat us and so this is crazy the problem is that they make they don't feed the lions because they want them to be ferocious and I'm supposed to fight the lion with you know like a burning stick from the from the campfire and, and keep him at bay but the lion is now loose and this scene is going to have to wait until they capture the lion. So I say, how are you going to capture the lion? And they say, well, come with me and you'll watch us. And, and so the, the, the Spanish lion wranglers get a, 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 a goat, a baby goat that they've brought along <laughs> just in case they need this goat. And they put him in the back of a Land Rover. And and the and they tie the goat to the back seat of the Land Rover to the headrest, and they open the back of the of the Land Rover, and and they all run. They and they tell me run, run, run. And sure enough, out from the fringes of the oasis, from the dark, comes the mountain lion. This huge, like Bengal lion, goes bouncing through and jumps into the back of the Land Rover, and starts killing. <laughs> this land and, and the wranglers come and s close the back of the door of the Land Rover and all you can see you can imagine a, a Disney cartoon of blood and fur and, and and all kinds of stuff flying against this window and uh, they wait until all everything calms down and they open the back door and the lion's just lying there like a like a house cat and licking his lips and purring like he's the happiest animal in the world and so um, they, they can leash him again and bring him to the set so I can do the scene with him with the fire. Anyway, this is the kind of things that happen on sets that you, know, you, don't, you don't see very often, you don't hear about, but they're true, right? They're true. And, and, the, and the scene with Helen Mirren, look, Helen Mirren at that point, uh, when I shot this film with her in 1980, was already a stage actress at the RSC, at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I had seen her in London when I was over there uh, traveling, and I knew exactly who she was. She hadn't made a lot of films yet, but I knew that she was a really good stage actress, and she was, you know, like this great kind of up-and-coming leading lady. So, but I also knew that she was super sexy. And when I met her, I was my, my, you know, I had heard that she was super sexy, but as a young woman, she was phenomenally sexy. And so I, I met her, you know, with the director. Um, by the way, three guys in, in New York auditioned to, to star opposite her. Kevin Klein, Bill Hurt, William Hurt, and me. And I got the part. And I think I only got the part because I had a passport, you know, and I could be in London like a couple days later to start shooting. So anyway, I show up in London and the director, Matthew Chapman, who's written the script, says, um, John, he says, I want you to meet Helen. Helen, this is John. He said, don't forget, uh, Wednesday is the sex scene, John. Wednesday is the sex scene. And I go, the sex scene? Well, I, I don't remember a sex scene. And Helen said, oh, darling, oh, there's a sex scene. It's not called hussy for nothing, darling. No. <laughs> so two days after I meet her, we show up in this massive loft down on Wapping High Street, you know, my character's loft. And all there is in the entire loft, in the middle of the floor, is a, is a queen-size mattress. No pillows, no sheets, just a mattress. And he says, yes, John, that's where you're going to shag her, John. And, and I hope you know what you're doing because, you know, I want this to look great, mate.
you're going to be stalkers, he says to me. I go, stalkers? He goes, yeah, stalkers, John. Stock fucking naked, mate. Oh, you're, no clothes, mate. Helen's getting in makeup now. You have to get in makeup. So anyway, I, I am so nervous. You know, this is during the rehearsal because we're shooting the next day. I'm so nervous. I, I can't sleep at all that night. I wake up. I take a two-hour shower. I put on nine layers of deodorant. I show up at the set early. Helen's nowhere. She finally breezes in. She goes to her dressing room. I'm in mine. And then she says to me, though, the night before, John, don't worry, mate. Don't worry. I've got the secret. And I go, you, you've got a secret? She says, yes. And I said, well, what's the secret? She said, well, it wouldn't be a secret if I told you. I'll tell you tomorrow, John. And so all night long, I'm thinking, what is Helen Mirren's secret? to doing a nude sex scene, right? And so I'm like, oh, so it's like half an hour, please, half an hour to places, half hour, please. And then 15 minutes, please, and there's still no Helen. I'm ready to go. I've got a bathrobe on and nothing else. And finally, like 10 minutes, please, 10 minutes, I go knock on her dressing room door, which adjoins mine. And I say, Helen, uh, it's John. Oh, John, come in, darling, sit down. I said, well, Helen, in about 10 minutes, we're going to be rolling stalkers on the bed. She says, yes, mate. She said, uh, I said, you, well, you had a secret. You want to share that secret? She says, yes, John, reach into my bag there. You're going to find something. Uh, it's long. It's hard. And pull it out. It might be cold. And so I reach into her bag uh, next to her chair, and I pull out a bottle of red wine. A bottle of red wine. Now, it's seven. 30 in the morning in London, right? I've just been off the plane for <laughs> a couple of days. But she says, well, I said, well, do you have a corkscrew? She said, John, this is your character's apartment. I would think that you would know where the corkscrew is, wouldn't you, mate? So I run into the kitchen. I grab a corkscrew. The director says, what are you doing? I said, leave us alone. I'll, we'll be out in a little while. And so we pop the cork and I get two glasses and we start drinking wine. And we have that bottle of wine together sitting, Helen and I, in her dressing room. And we have, we're laughing so hard, we can barely see. And then we go out into the set and she says, oh, wait, I, I forgot another little surprise. And I said, what's that? And she said, it's another bottle of wine, John. So we bring out the other bottle and she cracks the cork and, and the scene goes really well. And we shoot all day long. And if you ever saw the poster for this, which ended up, you know, like on the billboards in Leicester Square, you know, like a block long. There's the two of us lying in bed, and at the, at the head of the bed, there's a bottle of wine. Ah! <laughs> this is oh, fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Now, I, I, there are a number of films after this that I want to chat with you about, but we have to kind of move along and move up the, the line. I mean, obviously, Kennedy and Windy City before the, the TV stuff. Windy City is important, I feel, just because it was, unless I'm wrong, is that not your first time working with your buddy Army? Army had seen Missing, and he had auditioned, uh, like, lots of guys. Lots and lots and lots. I mean, hundreds of guys in L.A. Just to introduce, we're talking about Army and Bernstein, who is a director, but also a producer. But on that, he was a director, correct? He was the writer and the director. It was his first feature film. First writer and director. He later, you know, did um, One from the Heart with Francis Ford Coppola, which he wrote that Francis directed. 
Uh, he started Beacon Pictures. He's one of the most successful producers in Hollywood independent history. Oh, yeah. He's produced 50 major feature films and you know, worked with every A-list actor in the world. Uh, but this was his feature film debut as a director. As, as a director. And so, yeah. As a director and, and, and as the writer. And he, he had seen me, my performance in Missing, and so he called my agent and he offered me this part. And they reached me on the island where I still live on Nantucket Island. And uh, he said, John, uh, I want you to come to Chicago. I'm excited uh, to offer you this part. I read the script. I love the script. And I said, when do you want to shoot, Army? He's in L.A., right? And I said, he said, August. And I said, well, Army, I, I can't come in August. And he said, what do you mean you can't come? And I said, well, because the reason I love your script is because it's a story about a guy whose best friend is dying. And he rallies all the other friends around him. Um, to make his death like the best possible death, like the, all the dreams come true. And, he's, and Kate Capshaw plays my girlfriend in it, and Josh Mustel plays my best friend who's dying. And so, but my best friend on Nantucket had, had just died in real life. And so I was in mourning and rallying all my friends around his family. So I was living the film that Army had written, which oh is why God. I wanted to do it. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why I wanted to do his film. And and then, but I didn't want to shoot it just in then in August. And is that when you introduced uh, uh, Army to come to to Nantucket to visit you at that time? And he fell in love with the island. Correct. He he fell in love with the island. He stayed here. He had a like a spiritual experience on his birthday. He called Ned Tannen, who was the head of of. Uh, of Warner Brothers, and he uh, said, uh, I, I think it was Ned. Uh, anyway, he said, we got to push the film until October. And he, he spent the rest of the summer hanging out with me. Fantastic. I did a play after that. Yeah, yeah. With Sigourney Weaver, I did a play with Sigourney. He hung out with us in Williamstown. And anyway, so I love right. Army, and he and I now have been friends for all these years, and um, yeah, you know, we, we, uh, we collaborated, we, right? We're well. We, yeah, uh, that's another story. We had a feature film together uh, that he produced and I wrote and directed. Uh, Great this Lady. film is called Gray Lady. Gray Lady, yeah. And that's the one we, we talk about it down the line. But we're still friends and still working together. Absolutely. So in in uh, in the film Honeymoon, which I think was was nineteen eighty five, I I I I looked at it in detail and I realized, wait a second. It said something I knew not at all of you. There was some aspect of it where you would uh, perform in French language. Can you talk a little bit about Honeymoon and how that film came about? I know nothing about it. Is that? Tell me about the story about Honeymoon and 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 and, and about uh, getting involved with that film in general and and how it came about. And I, I don't know anything about it. So. Yeah, Charlie, let me just say, because of Costa Gavras and that time that I spent with him in Paris, um, I had always loved French cinema. You know, I loved uh, Godard, I loved the new wave, I loved the auteur theories, yeah. I loved uh, Truffaut. And so I, I, you know, I just loved the French films. French so films. I was offered suddenly uh, the starring part in a, opposite one of the great French actresses at that time in the 1980s, whose name was Natalie Bai. B -A -Y -E. Natalie Bai, a wonderful, great actress, yeah. Do you remember her from La Balance and the return of Martin Guerre with 
Gerard Depardieu, she starred opposite him. Fantastic, yeah. So she was, you know, I mean, arguably one of the great actresses at that time. And so I I was to play opposite her in a a very film noir kind of love story, sort of like the equivalent of playing with Helen Mirren in London, who was a great French, English actress. Um, So I got to go to France. Uh, but the, the catch was that we were, the, the director spoke no English whatsoever. His name was Patrick Jamin. They wanted me to help translate the script from French into English. And they wanted me to shoot it in what's called double version. That means double version. We would shoot every scene first in English and then in French. And so that meant that Natalie Bai was going to have to shoot everything in English and French as well. So wow. I, that is, yeah, so they, they asked me to shoot, so they offered me this job six months before we we're going to start shooting, right? And so, and they hired a coach for me. So I worked with a, a, a coach in New York and in Paris for six months before I started shooting, learning French and specifically the French in the script. So I knew how to pronounce every word and, and what everything meant clearly, right? Wow, so that was a great experience for me. That, I, I, loved, mean, I had I never, it. Yeah. you know, I mean, I, I grew up as a, I grew up as a kid in uh, another phone call coming in, unbelievable. I grew up as a kid in Brussels, Belgium, in 1972 to 1979. We came back to New York, age 10 to 17, and I, you know, I, I went to movies growing up in in in, in Brussels, which was not a city where the the French language cinema, since Brussels is a French language city, uh, 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 fully embraced only dubbed uh, um, American and English language and English films, uh, uh, which was the sort of the standard for, for, for France and not for, you know, Holland or, or the north of Belgium where they subtitled everything, right? So, so I was used to seeing, you know, when we arrived as kids in Brussels, the first thing my brother and I saw when we turned the, the, the television on was we, we were in my dad's apartment before we moved into a, a house because my, 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 my family relocated to Europe. And, um, and, and we were watching an episode of Get Smart uh, on television. This is now 1972. And it was, and, and the whole, all the episodes were all dubbed into French. And my, my brother and I, and we just couldn't, stop laughing because because they, they they did they did dub right i mean you could imagine what anyway what this is like but not all of europe will spend the money on dubbing although certainly the the french the italians the spanish uh uh in certain parts of europe where where there would be where there was uh, uh an industry for actors who would play like known actors. I mean, it, it's one of the cores of, uh, of uh, the, the film by Pedro Almodovar, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, where the male character is a language dubber. And I've, I've worked a little bit in that world and, you know, up in Canada and Quebec province where, you know, there are actors that spend their careers playing specific people. Like there's one guy that plays Stallone and one guy that plays, you know, and all that, right? But this is Double Bergeon. I mean, this is crazy. I never heard of the idea of, of, of getting in front of dubbing by acting in both languages. 
is this something, and, and I mean, I'm literally, I mean, I, not that I shouldn't say that I don't learn something every time I do a podcast, but I had never heard of, 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 of doing a take by take version of the, of a film so that in the end there would be no dub version. You would actually be speaking the language and there would be no dubbing. This and, is I'll just say, Charlie, they actually had, they told me later that they had planned to have a, a French actor come in and revoice me. You know that they called dubbing synchro, synchro, right? Right. For synchronization. And, and, but in the year that I spent in France um, working on this film back and forth, flying back and forth, my French became good enough. They said, you know, your character is an American who speaks French. You don't actually have to be French French. So I'll tell you what, why, why don't you post dub your entire performance? So I then spent a month at the Studio Klingenkor, which is outside of Paris. You know, the Studio Klingenkor is famous for its dubbing stage. Mm -hmm. And I went in and I revoiced my entire performance in new, improved French. Right, so and you did, you did your, own astonishing. your own, your own, did, your own dubbing, ADR. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, amazing. I did. And then I toured France with Natalie and was on French talk shows, you know, telling jokes in French. I mean, it was crazy. So I, I felt, and then, you know, the, the suddenly there's your picture on, on the uh, Champs-Élysées. And um, honestly, I felt honor, uh, like an honorary Frenchman. And, you know, my, when I came back to Paris, I mean, to L.A., to Hollywood, my agents barely watched it. Nobody cared. You know who cared? Whoopi Goldberg. Because I was staying with her, you know, I mean, in the room next to me at the um, Chateau Maman. She said, where have you been? I told her what I was doing. She said, oh, my God, I want to see the film. I showed it to Whoopi Goldberg. And Whoopi Goldberg said, this is fantastic. And she had screenings in Hollywood for in honor of the film. And, and that's just who Whoopi is. Incredibly generous person. I love her for, you know. Wonderful. And Jack Lemmon came. And they're all, you know, yeah. yeah. So anyway, the film, it was obviously an art house film nobody cared about it in america it got a limited release um but in france you know it's still uh no and i actually walk down the street in paris these days and people stop me yeah wow one that, 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 what a what an incredible thing i mean uh uh I, like i said i i you know i expand my i expand my mind every time uh something like a story like that comes my way um your life new york theater film the 80s because you know we're in we're talking generations the 80s the 90s you hit the 90s you're doing 93 you're doing oh another there we go this is going to be an epidemic with the phone call so the um the lois uh, and clark the adventures of superman is 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 really the a long stretch really right in the early, early 993 you did that and and uh and and that and as your character lex luther that became sort of a, an, an identifier. I mean, you know, we all have, like, I think you even mentioned to me, people still, is that correct? Stop you for that? Or they did at one yeah. time, or right? That that was, uh, you know, we all become known and then, and then renowned for something else, and right? So talk about yeah, Do you remember in, like, People Magazine, you'd always have, like, a middle name. It would be John Missing Shea, and it would be John Kennedy Shea, or John whatever. Then, then it, it, like... Lex Luthor became um, a new middle name for me, you know, when they identify you in the, in the uh, fan magazines. So all I can say is that I, 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 
I had been working on stage a lot after a bunch of films and I was doing things off Broadway. I did Rosmer's Holm, you know, like an Ibsen tragedy. Oh, oh, throughout the, throughout the 80s. I was 80. doing all these other plays. Yeah, through, throughout the, the end of the 80s. And my son, Jake, was born and I was living in Soho all those years. I lived in Soho for 25 years. Uh, so I was always a New York actor, but I was, my, I, I realized I was losing out on, and I spent a year, you know, doing Honeymoon and all these other foreign films. I went to Israel and I shot a film, uh, two films back to back for six months in Israel, with one with Kelly McGillis and another one with Eli Wallach. I played Israel's most famous uh, spy in, in a film called uh, The Impossible Spy. Anyway, but I was doing these things all over the world, but I wasn't making an impact in Hollywood. So I hired a new manager, and this manager was very smart. His name was Keith Addis, and his uh, associate, Eli uh, Selden. And they said, John, you got to come out here. You got to make some, you got to do something new in Hollywood uh, because uh, you're losing out uh, these parts because you know, you're doing all these foreign films. So I said, all right. So I did go to Hollywood and um, he, he sent me a script one day, Keith. And he said, um, they're having a problem over at Warner Brothers casting Lex Luthor. Read this, tell me what you think. I read the script. I knew immediately what Lex Luthor should be. And this is the truth. I said, he's got to look like Donald Trump and he's got to think like Richard III. Because being a New Yorker, I knew that Donald Trump was like this young playboy, bon vivant, master of the universe type, right? Fine suits, fast cars, lots of women. But I also knew that Lex Luthor was something like a sociopath. And I had played Richard III, the great Shakespearean villain on stage. And um, so all I can tell you is that I went over to Warner Brothers and I met with Leslie Moonves. Leslie Moonves was the president of Warner's television. And I went to Leslie's office and he said, what do you got? And I said, well, I have an idea. He said, well, go ahead, show me. So it's just the two of us in his office. But I laid out this kind of interpretation and this long monologue that Lex Luthor had in the pilot. And he said, I like it. He said, he called his office in and they all came in, the casting people, everybody else filled the office. I did it again. They went, okay, we're going to ABC tomorrow. The next day I went to ABC and there in the theater at ABC was Bob Iger. Bob Iger in those days was president of ABC, later to become president of Disney and, you know, like a master of the universe in that world. So then it was Leslie and Bob Iger and I did the audition again and um, I got the part. That's all I can say is that I had to audition for it but I went in with a very clear idea and I wore my best Armani suit. I looked like a million bucks, but I fought like a maniac. And by the way, because I had, uh, this is just a footnote here, Army, but uh, uh, Charlie, how they, how they tie together. To do the character in Honeymoon opposite Natalie Bai, where my character, I wasn't sure, I knew he was mentally ill. I didn't know how, what his illness was. I entered myself into psychoanalysis in character at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. And I went to the head of the abnormal psychology department and I paid him to read the script. And then I would go into his office and he psychoanalyzed the script and me as the, as the character. And he said, you're not a psychopath, you're a sociopath. And, the, and he taught me the difference. And so I brought what I learned in doing Honeymoon to Lex Luthor. And that's 
why I had so much fun doing it because I knew I could do anything I wanted to do because sociopaths aren't self-conscious about what they're doing at all. All the, the only thing that sociopaths have is an appetite. They just need to devour, but they don't feel any remorse. They're on top of the world. They, they do everything with a big smile, right? Yeah. You know, so anyway, I mean, that, that fabulous description of the character. So I had so much fun doing Lex Luthor, and it became a big hit. It was sold all over the world by Warner Brothers, and right, it was on ABC every Sunday night for three years. So I, I became a TV star, and uh, that was kind of great because it just opened a lot more doors and led to other things. Right, because uh, the, the ton of television after that. A spoiler alert for me on this was today when I was sitting around in between things, I I. I turned on the 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 first three episodes of of the show, uh, and uh, and saw your uh, your early performances in in the, the beginning of that show, and and you know <laughs> something that goes back to a time when I don't think I I had my eyes on on the show, and I was like, oh my god, this is this performance is this is outrageous. I mean the 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 character you play is so fantastic. It's so it's that. It's that that lovely sort of elegant evil, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, yeah. in a sense, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, I have to give credit to the writer again because, you know, I love writers. I, I really love them. And uh, this was a woman named Deborah Joy Levine. And Deborah Joy Levine was just, she had an instinct for this. And she did something really original, which is that she turned this old comic book character into a romantic comedy. Uh, because you remember Terry Hatcher and Dean Cain were kind of great, but it was a love triangle too with Lex Luthor, uh, also in love with with the Terry Hatcher character. Uh, so all I can tell you is that she brought an original spin to it that she kept going for, I think, four or five years. And uh, I, I hats off to her, hats off to Leslie Moonves and everybody who greenlit it. But, um, and, and, you know... Uh, they, they would let me in the writer's room and I learned a lot about writing, hanging out with them. And I, I'd say, you know, I have an idea for season two. And they say, well, like what? And I, you know, I pitched my ideas to them and, and they ended up taking some of them and, you know, modifying them. But it was really fun hanging out with the writers, seeing how they did all this. You know? Where was, where was that series shot? At Warner Brothers. At Warner Brothers. So this was shot in Hollywood, which was the series that took you, to, to Toronto, is that later on in which one? You said you ended up living in Toronto at some point. That was, uh, we sh that was also produced by Warner Brothers. Oh, sorry, Chuck. That was produced by Warner Brothers and Marvel Comics, but it was shot in Toronto. And that was called Mutant X. It was Mutant the X, which was later on, yeah. It was the X-Men, as the, uh, that franchise, the Marvel franchise, shot as a, as a television series. So you, your, your years, you had a, a, a block of years in, in, in New York. Then when, when it came time to kind of dig in with, with, with the TV world, you, you, you relocated and moved your life to L.A. and your family. How did, what were your moves? What was your geography? Because obviously when you were doing uh, uh, the, the Adventures of Superman, you were living in Los Angeles now. I was. I never let go of my apartment in New York. I rented it out to a couple of different people or I let people stay there. But we, yeah, I lived in, in Hollywood, you know, not in Hollywood, but in the West Side. 
and uh, lived there for I don't know for 25 years. I've always years, had places yeah. there. Uh, for Mutant X, we shot for three years in, in Toronto, and so I, I did live up there during the season, eight months a year, shooting in Toronto. And then in the summers, I would you know do other things. Right, and you and 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 uh, Nantucket was always an in and out theme in your life, I guess, until you've made it work because you live there today, of course. Made Nantucket was always a place for like spiritual retreat. Oh, sorry, yeah, sorry. No, go ahead. Nantucket was just a place for spiritual retreat. And 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 today you you run the the theater company there as 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 uh, as the director of of the Nantucket Theater Company, and, and you continue to make your 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 entire life there since you did a great lady, which is a good segue actually to talk about uh, your life and your instinct in 1998 to to take to take a. a what would be your first shot at, at film directing with Southie, correct? Yes, Charlie. You know, so you remember that, are you good to go? Yeah. Good to go. Okay, yeah. You remember that story that I told you about the drama school where I actually graduated as a director, I actually kind of a double major acting and directing, but there was this part of me that was laying dormant for 18 years as I was making movies around the world and shooting and being on stage as an actor, just acting, uh, which was the directing side of me. Right? And, um, but I had gone to see Martin Scorsese because I wanted to be in Goodfellas. And Martin Scorsese said, John, you're not going to be in Goodfellas, okay? You, you, you're Irish and you're not Italian. So do me a favor, get out of my office and go tell your own stories. He said, the Irish are supposed to be such great storytellers. There hasn't been a good Irish American filmmaker since John Ford. So go, go make your own stories. And, I, uh, and so I, I thought about what he said. And then I met a guy in, uh, in New York named Daniel Egan, a Franciscan friar in the late 80s. And he was a guy who had a story and and i started learning how to be a screenwriter with the idea of directing his story one day and it turns out that john cassavetes and howard koch jr and fred zinneman and all these guys i had also wanted to tell the story but nobody ever had a chance john unfortunately john cassavetes got cancer and died fred uh was too busy um howard koch you know, all these other guys. So anyway, the rights came to me. And so I went to Hollywood in the early 90s. While I was acting in various films, I was studying screenwriting. And I wanted to direct this guy's story because it's such a great story. But what happened was in 1997 or 96, these young writers came to me and said, hey, would you direct our film? We have a film set in Boston. So they gave me the script that later became Southie. The script, and there's one guy in particular, Jimmy Cummings and his writing partner, Dave McLaughlin. They were 25 years old, but they had grown up in South Boston, which was the world of Whitey Bulger and the Irish mob. And they had written a story that they were looking for a director and they gave it to me to say, what do you think? I read it and I said, look, I love this setting and your dialogue and all this stuff, but the story needs some work. Let me work on the story and then I'll, I'll give you an answer. It took me a year, Charlie, but the whole time I was shooting 
Lex Luthor flying back and forth because remember I was living in Manhattan and commuting to Warner Brothers every single week for the first year. I put 30,000 miles in the air and I wrote the script based on, on the script that they gave me. I rewrote it, okay? And, you know, it just needed work. That's all I can tell you is structuring. Um, so that became Southie and I directed Southie and I, you know, and Donnie Wahlberg starred in it and Rose McGowan and Amanda Peet and Anne Mira and Lawrence Tierney plays the Whitey Bulger character. And that's another whole story, but it was an amazing experience working with everybody in South Boston. We were the first film. So um, Matt Damon and those guys came to our rap party because, and Ben Affleck because they were about to shoot a film. And so I said, well, meet my crew, you know? And so they took our crew and they made Goodwill Hunting. And amazing of course, film. which is a great fantastic, film. amazing, right, great, right? So all I can say is that I, I, I love directing that. We sold it, we won the Seattle Film Festival, we sold it to Lionsgate, we represented the United States at the Montreal Film Festival, uh, we sold it to Lionsgate, and you know, it's still playing out there in the world. So then I thought, now that was the warm-up, and I could do this film about the, this Franciscan, uh, that's set in New York when the mafia brought heroin out of Harlem into Manhattan. And this guy went to war. Uh, but then Army Bernstein came along, my buddy from Windy City and Beacon, and he said, John, what if we make a, uh, you know, like a thriller set in a resort in the off season? And I said, Nantucket, he said, yeah, John, you live here. There has never been another film, feature film shot here, a big, a major feature film. I'll, I'll produce it. We'll, we'll make a movie. I said, all right, I mean, let's do it. So 10 years later, Charlie, 10 years later, we finally released that film. It took a long time. I won't bore your audience with what, it, what, what took place. But let's just say that in the end, I believe that the universe protected us from making a film that wasn't ready until it was finally ready. And all the delays that we had, a global financial meltdown, all these things, losing all of the financing, it all came back. And when it came back, the script was really ready to make. Eric Dane stars in this, and Eric Dane just texted me a uh, while ago. And this is a shot of us on the set outside of the Charlie, house. because you... No, no. It's oh, you got that. It's a shot you of know. Andre, and, and I'm saying... Andre and, and I'm the... I'm the fat guy in the middle. But now I'm not fat anymore. But I was very fat there. <laughs> so, so let me just say one thing. So you and I connected on Southie because technically we shot Southie, as you know, on 35 millimeter. Five, yeah. Michael Butler was the original DP and Alan Baker, who was his protege. Alan Baker's first film, Michael Butler, famous for a lot of great films that we could talk about. But all the film was sent to you, and you took care of us. I think it was a third of our budget. You know, we had a low-budget film. And Before a third of it, I think, went to the film, film stock film and was the line item. It was, uh, it was the closest uh, cost to being above the line when independent films were made because there was a huge right. amount of money to spend on stock processing and printing and then all the finishing. So, but you, yeah. but you, you, you took care of. Yeah. 
anyway, but you took care of us, Charlie, and, and, and you made it look great on low budget. And you did a lot of favors to a lot of independent filmmakers in New yes. York at the time. And then and, that continued on Ray Lady when we that. put in editing rooms in a on behalf of us in Nantucket, yeah, on Gray Lady many years later. And uh, yes, and then you and then we did Gray Lady, yeah. And that's Andre Barkoviak, the great cinematographer, uh, you know, an old friend and a lovely man. We love and a great and a great director, you know, uh, all these films. He just shot a film in Shanghai. So all I can say is that we were lucky to work with you again. Yeah. And then, so, then the Dan Egan story lives on. And now the Dan Egan story is like what I'm looking forward to next. Honestly. Very exciting. Very exciting. And, 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 and a, lot of, I, a lot of twists and turns to the script as well, right? I mean, you were able to actually talk to him and record hours of time with him, right? Before Because he, he passed away. At what, what year was it? Uh, he passed away in 2000. He was 84 years old, but I spent 10 years hanging out with him. So I got to know him really well. And I tape recorded many of our conversations for like for over a year. And then I would go with, you know, and I would, I'd say, wait, where did that take place? And he'd say, well, come on, John, I'll show you. And we'd run outside and he'd take me all over Greenwich Village. And so slowly but surely I learned about screenwriting. Uh, again, this uh, great managers that I had in, in L.A., uh, made sure that I was um, given a stack of the best scripts by the best writers every single year, all the Academy Award winning and Academy Award nominated scripts. And I would read them and study them. And I got to know who all the great writers were. And I learned a lot from reading other people's scripts. You know? Absolutely. And and in your career as a, as a rhythm from Lex Luthor in 93, all the way up to the deep into the, the 2000s, 2012, 13, 14, 15, the, 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 the television world became sort of thematic for you because it, it provided regular opportunities and such great and interesting characters to play, right? I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of, of narrative episodic television, and I, and I think that, you know, uh, uh, there's no, there are not camps it's 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 three arenas you know you have you have you have feature narrative you have episodic television and you have of course you know you personally have theater which is beautiful right and and and, and you're able to to embrace uh, all of them and bring your art to all of them and uh, and that's sort of what you you've you've done with with your with with your life which is uh, to to be able to 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 have a run that that includes both and that continues for for you to con to constantly push to 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 do both and to and then to to go ahead and direct a movie again you know and and continue to do what you do what i'm interested in knowing is in you you were you went to catholic school in springfield massachusetts and 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 were an athlete and on the I guess on the debate team and were obviously a, an athletic vibrant young man. But were what did you have a feeling when you were a high school student or a younger man that that this career was uh, uh, at your was there any uh, inkling at the time? When when did acting when did, when did it all ignite? Charlie, I want to say just two things. First. Uh, um, to, to address something before I answer that question, 
is that the theater has been the constant through line. And, and I have to say, it's something that Army Bernstein always said to me. He said, John, look at the life of Bergman. And Bergman, I have to say, is one of my heroes, the great Swedish director. And because remember, Bergman lived on a little island, right? And he always worked in the theater. He worked in the theater until the day he died. And the theater fed him, and the theater gave him a chance to explore. The theater, he met all these great actors, and then he put them in his movies. And so I'm still connected to a theater where I served my apprenticeship back in 1968. Uh, it's called the Theater Workshop of Nantucket. It's a professional company. I'm now the artistic director emeritus, uh, but I produced, uh, you know, 40 productions here. And I do Moby, I do Orson Welles's Moby Dick every year here for the last 10 years. I play Ahab. I direct this wow. production in the Whaley Museum, and hopefully one day, Charlie, you'll come uh, under the skeleton of a of a 60 foot sperm whale. Uh, but I have a hundred people in my company and, and with Justin, the, the guy who took my day-to-day -day job, you know, we, we just keep the art alive. And what this does is that when I go to make a movie like Grey Lady, I was able to draw on, on shooting on Nantucket, our big theater company, so that I could bring, uh, like Bergman did, you know, a sense of truth and reality to the smallest part. Or, or like uh, Fellini, all these characters who were my heroes, Costa Gavras. The smallest part, the, the extra in the corner, you want them to be, to, to be telling the truth, right? And so, I, you know, you have to get to know a place. But like I know Nantucket, you know, these actors all here told the truth. So anyway, to answer your question, in Springfield, I had no idea about the theater. There were no theaters in Springfield that I ever saw. I went to Catholic school. It was great. But I was a young, wild kid. You know, I played sports and I, you know, I was on the debate team and I have to say I love debating. Debating became a great uh, preparation for acting for me because I got used to speaking in front of people and uh, also learning about both sides of, the, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a subject matter or a story. So there's the good guy, but there's also the bad guy. And there's like in debating, there's always the people who are, you know, affirmative and negative. So you learn both sides of, of any given story. But it wasn't until I got to Bates that I discovered the theater. And Charlie, that's maybe the, the last little bit. Um, is there another little coincidence? So I was playing football at Bates. I was there on a football and debating scholarship. But I hurt my knee really badly and I couldn't play. So the head of the team said, look, you're useless on the field, but I know you got a good fake ID. Go buy the beer for the game tonight, after the game. So I went over to the debate room to get my fake ID and a woman who was sitting there at a table with a bunch of people said, Mr. Shea, what are you doing? And I couldn't tell her that I was getting my fake ID. So she said, come here, sit down, read this. And at the end of this reading of whatever it was, a couple hours later, she said, all right, you've got the part. We start rehearsal on Monday morning. And this was a six-foot woman in her 80s with white hair named Lavinia Schaefer. And she cast me in my first play. I said, what was this? She said, that was a play, Mr. Shea, by William Shakespeare. It's called Much Ado About Nothing. And congratulations, you're playing the lead, Benedict. And I did. And I had to give up football, but I discovered that the theater was even more fun than football. Wow. And instead I, of a yeah, coach, you had a director. Instead of a locker room, you had a dressing room. Yeah, it was fun. I got to sword fight and kiss the girl and speak Shakespearean poetry and... It changed my life. So I changed my major and I became an actor. And, and, and that's the great thing about mentors, right? 
that uh, did you have a mentor that you know inspired you at some point? Charlie? Absolutely, absolutely. He was uh, he was a still photographer. He's still photographer, but uh, a psychology uh, professor. Because where I when I was at Clark, we we had self design majors. So my my major was in the study of dreams, and I had a still photography professor who who had built an a, a, an experimental uh, uh, time lapse rig uh, uh, over people sleeping with uh, um, uh, electrodes attached to polygraphs and electrodes attached to their body to measure their their brain activity during REM sleep and. And this guy was uh, also a great artist and still photographer. And, and uh, he was like my, I guess, my visual arts mentor with my psychology professor. And then Raymond Rowe for the theater because I acted. So he was my, my theater mentor. I, I, I didn't continue on with acting, although I, I, in some ways I wish I would have. But, but, but I, they, were, they, were my, they were my leaders. And, 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 and as a visual artist, I went directly out of college into production and worked in film production and then and then got involved in post but i i'm you know by origin i i was really never meant to work in a in a lab although i did but but i um but i i started that way and it i think you know it's sort of life life's what happens when when you're making plans right i mean you don't know what's gonna you don't know what's gonna happen and and your story is that story you 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 ran into uh it, it, it was a happy accident Right. I mean, essentially, yeah. right? I mean, and, uh, yeah, yeah. and that, and that, and that to me is, uh, you know, that's the magic of, of, of what takes place. It's the same thing that happened in my own career in, 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 in post and moving to New York and doing all the things that I've done with my career in that arena. And then now kind of returning back to the creative team again and starting a new leg, but, but it's, uh, you know, it's these happy accidents and these things that happen that, that take us somewhere. I mean, I, I also look at my own life as having been a, a film projectionist in, a, in an old movie theater in Somerville, Massachusetts, the Davis Square Theater, where we would show four films a night. And, and I, I was a film history student. So there I was kind of continuing in that and then working in production. But, but there is a linear path and there is a passion. There is a love. There is a soul. And, and, and somehow you know, that, that water flows, right? And, and, and for you, uh, a, a, a knee injury in football uh, uh, made it possible for you to all of a sudden dive headfirst into something that I didn't know that you hadn't done before. I didn't, I wasn't sure. That's why I was asking about Springfield and Bates. So you didn't act before that, before Bates. No, but I, but I grew up in a really wonderful home. My mother and father were fantastic. My dad was an educator, a teacher, and a coach. And, uh, you know, basically they just said, you know, you, you, God gives each of us gifts, and we just got to figure out what those gifts are. We got to work up, uh, use those gifts to make the world a better place. And your, and your father was, uh, uh, was, was uh, not only a, a professor, but ultimately would become the, the head of a, of the Freiburg Academy in, in, in Maine, right? Was he, how did that all, what were, what were the generations of time? He was Freiburg Academy in Maine when you were born in North Conway, and then obviously you moved to Springfield, but, but he was, a, he was a, 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 an educator, and was he a sports coach as well? What was that, what was your early life like? Yeah, yeah. So, so my dad, uh, my dad uh, was a young guy. He was never the headmaster there because when he, he, he went to Bates before me. He had fought the Germans in World War II. He had fought his way across France, got to the Battle of the Bulge. Battle of the Bulge, right. I mean, he was, he was, a, he was a World War II 
first wave veteran if he ended up in, in, in Bastogne in Belgium where the Battle of the Bulge was fought. So these are guys that, you know, my father-in-law on my, on my ex-wife's side was in the first wave at Normandy. Uh, there's, these guys are different people. Every day they wake up is, is magical. You know, uh, they, they're, 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 the way they start their lives after having served in, in, in World War II, uh, uh, every, every, every day is a beautiful day, right? Because you're, 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 you're embarking on a, on a journey of, of, of having lived through something that was, was total horror, right? That's right. Guys saved their lives. They saved other guys' lives. And when they came back to America, they realized, oh, my God, how lucky we are to live in this country. And so uh, they just dedicated themselves, uh, that whole generation of guys, to right. you know, having, living a good life and, and doing the right thing. And so my dad set a good example for me. But w when I told him that I wanted to be an actor, uh, he said, what are you talking about? I, you know, nobody had ever been anything creative in our family. Um, so I, I said, well, why don't you come up to Bates with mom and he was, come see the play. So they came to see Much Ado About Nothing. And he said, okay, you can do whatever you want, you know. So anyway, so it, I was very lucky to have a supportive family. And I'm sure you did too. That yeah. allowed you to become the person that you are, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely. Was your dad? Yeah? Absolutely. The same thing. Uh, uh, no, no interest in uh, themselves in, in the theater. My mom was a my mom was a journalist. My father was a, a metal trader. But but he you know he never he was not an athlete. But I I mean I was an athlete and acted and he was always you know whatever I wanted to do if I wanted to if I wanted to be a visual artist it was it was all it was it was wide open for me. Uh, I was not uh, given a, a challenge to do something other than what I was passionate about. Um, and, uh, uh, that, that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, I, I think, you know, that the beginning of, of, a uh, of a journey, uh, that, that leads to, I guess, where we are today and all the zigs and zags along the way. Um, I think it's the, it's, it's, it's the great, it's really the great message for an art artist, an artist journey, a creative journey, a life journey, right? Yes. You know, and Charlie, if I had uh, some advice uh, for your young directors or writers or actors, I would say that um, they should learn about business. Uh, at some point, if they're still in school, take a business class, a business course, um, or talk to people who are in business. Find out about business, how the world works, how money works. Because uh, I didn't study anything about business at Bates. I didn't study any business at Yale. I didn't know anything about business in, you know, working on in the theater or in film. But slowly but surely, I had to learn about business because if you want to make movies, you have to understand money. And, if, and, and then you're going to have to raise money. So, uh, and if you're going to raise money, that means that you're dealing with, um, you know, investors. And if you're dealing with investors, that means that you're dealing with, with people who are really smart and very successful, don't want to lose their money, but they, they're, they're willing to listen to what you have to say. But you have to know what you're talking about, understand things that you never really wanted to understand. And you have to become multidimensional, I think, if you want to survive and adapt and have a career that extends beyond your good looks. You know, uh, you see oftentimes uh, young women particularly who are you know, because of the way Hollywood has historically 
not been writing roles for them past a certain age, you know, that these, the smart young actresses now, once they have that power, they're learning about business, they're creating their own production companies, they're developing films and projects on their own, and they're creating opportunities for other young actors and directors, and they're mentoring people, right? Uh, and so I think that that's the way of the world now, um, that uh, I think the, the rules of Hollywood are changing uh, because of the way we have so many outlets and so many platforms, uh, but some things don't change. Uh, you know, being true to yourself, you know, writing, directing, knowing about everything, but, but how to be a producer. Because if you want to be an independent filmmaker, you know, you've got you to gotta actually get behind it. You have to create a budget. You have to write with money in mind. You have to figure out, Susan, you know who taught me this? Sidney Lumet. So uh, let's go back to the beginning. Sidney Lumet in his course at the Yale Film School was not about production. It was about how to do budgets. And I'd say, well, Sidney, like, what do you mean? And he said, well, and he would bring in budgets. Remember, he shot like 15, 20 films in New York City. He said, John, or to the class, why do you think they keep hiring me? And we said, well, you tell it because you're great. He goes, no, because I'm smart. And this is how I'm smart. He said, I'll do a budget. And I know that I can make, and I'm going to work really hard to figure out this budget. I, I know I'm gonna, I can make this film for $6 million, but I'm going to tell them, that is the studio, it's going to cost me $7 million. And I know that I can shoot this thing in 25 days, but I'm going to say it's going to take me 30 days. So here's the deal. I come in on budget, under budget, and, under, and on time. And so I'm a hero to the studios, to the investors, to the networks, and to my friends who trust me with their money because I'm going to deliver what I promised I would deliver. I'm not going to waste their money. And so it was a valuable lesson for me as a 24-year-old guy, right? It's what I do now. I, I, I pay attention to the budgets. And if I'm writing, if I'm directing, I want to make sure that our investors are paid back their money and everybody wins, you know? Studio wins, the investors win, the actors win, everybody wins, right? You, you yeah, no, no, no absolutely, that? no, no. It's incredible what you bring up. A hundred percent. My my career having uh, littered through the way it has because I, I mean, I had to deal with uh, huge post production budgets for hundred million dollar movies, twenty million dollar movies, one point five million dollar movies. Um, I I was constantly faced with with having to to shape. Uh, the goals uh, in post production for uh, for for feature filmmakers and, uh, and 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 episodic television, and and because I was on the receiving side of that whole chunk of that, and what I do today, the posing side, I'm the client and post supervising, co producing. I I I got to learn uh, uh, all of the business side of of equity and and debt and tax credits and all the things that we have to learn about in order to structure a deal that will have a, 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 a footprint that is possible to recoup and, and, and also to work with people and to be able to explain what the risk is and what the comps are and what the market is like. And yeah, you know, you, you do have to learn about uh, with, with a great line producer, hopefully um, how many days it's going to take to physically shoot something and how to, be efficient location to location, get it done. I think in the case of Sidney Lumet, who I got a chance to work with 
uh, quite a number of times at the towards the end of his life, on specifically on one movie that before the devil knows you're dead, and uh, the the crew used to have a bit of a holler about about Sydney at rap because he he insisted upon uh, 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 basically having an eight hour day. I mean, and no one was used to not being sort of tortured, right? To 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 work fourteen hours on getting. Get another call. There we go. So, um, you know, it was it was, but and he also did things very efficiently in single takes, and he 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 knew how many pages he had to get through, and he was ironclad in in being uh, efficient and understanding the business aspect of what he had to creatively do and what what he could be patient for and what he couldn't. So he was both a a director and a great you know artist, but also someone that understood that. That, that time costs money and hours of production and setups cost money. So everything you say is correct. He's like, he, he, he was that rare combination of someone that understood that people were paying bills and, and that, and that running over uh, uh, needlessly was, was, uh, was not responsible. Right. And, 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 and that, I guess, I mean, on some level, we're just going to say, God damn it. That's, that's so rare, you know, that, that that's known, but on the flip side, when we get a chance to be around people who are mindful uh, uh, towards that in the film industry, we see we see that we see that promise being kept, and we see what Sydney described, right? That 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 your that that what you describe, especially, is that everybody cares, right? Everybody cares about the, those involved, you know, the the, the people that that paid for the film to be made with their equity, whether it was a studio or individual investors, you know, you're, 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 you're never not thinking of them. It's not just that they gave the money and you don't care that they make it back. You do. And you, you build a plan for that to happen. And, uh, and, 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 and then on and on and the, 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 the cycle of being able to do the work that we do and, and, and also being good to each other because, I mean, this is a collaborative business and we work with artists, cinematographers, editors, production designers, composers, visual effects artists, um, and construction people, and all of the people that work on a set and then ultimately in post. It's a hell of a big team and we create a family out of that team, don't we, in the end, right? And I, I think about, you know, when, when Robert Altman, when I worked with him on a number of projects at the end of his life and the people I, I never got to know him extremely well but I at least I knew the stories of the the dinner table and people all coming together at the end of a, a day of shooting because I knew the actors and the people that worked with him and and that was a, the ensemble the the community the warmth and the love that that made something possible and then his own techniques of miking everyone and all of that but at the end of the day you know this this energy is what makes great work just like the story you tell of Costa Gravis and all the things that you absorbed coming into your life as a, as a director and as an actor so yes the the message is 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 learn every piece and don't just uh, turn the switch off and realize that if you're a collaborator that like you said, you know, what's the last thing that, uh, that the artists learn? And I, and I think it's the last thing that you just mentioned.
which is business, right? Because people, yeah. people decide that, what do I need to know that? That's why I have that guy. But no, that's not it. It's like, it's like, it's almost like if you were uh, an actor and you weren't interested in what the cinematographer did or what the set designer did or what the other people did on the job, when you would ultimately want to become a director, which you have, you would want to know what it is to be the, the captain. And then if you're going to be the director, know what it is to be responsible with someone else's money and how, and also what the structure of a deal would be that would be win-win for, for everybody that's involved. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how you ended the, your last thing. It broke up a little bit, but I, I agree with everything you just said. Uh, it's, it's completely true. And you've had a lot more experience with business and running Technicolor and doing all the posts. And now your whole new world in post-production is, uh, you know, you obviously you understand your work with producers and line producers and studios and networks. I'm a neophyte in this world, but I do understand uh, some essentials. And, and I'm glad we touched on them because, um, because they're not taught necessarily in undergraduate school and in drama schools and in film schools. And I think that they, if they're not taught, you got to find out uh, the truth on your own and, you know, just start hanging around the set all the time. That was the greatest thing for me, honestly, in all the films that I've made is that the directors were always like that. That thing you just talked about, Charlie, you know, you know, everybody would always have dinner and hang out. And I would sit next to a guy and say, well, what, what are you doing on the set? He said, well, I'm the, I'm the production accountant. I say, well, what do you do, you know, as a young guy? And they'd say, well, I have to keep track of all the money. Or I'm the prop buyer, or I'm the wing painter, or I'm the, you know, whatever everybody does. But the more you know, the better you are as an actor, director, writer, producer. Right? Unquestionably. Just, Unquestionably. Everybody's got a story. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and, and, and I, and I'm, I think we're, we're coming to a good place to close, but I'm going to, I'm going to encapsulate a little bit of this in something where we think about the, uh, uh, the, the tools and how they've changed digital from film, digital post-production, the greatest tool uh, uh, that we have that costs the least amount of money is, is the pen right where it all begins or or typewriter or ultimately now laptop it's the script it's the script marking up the script rewriting the script and and unfortunately in our business in 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 film well not unfortunately i should actually say now fortunately the the some people have said well jesus everything's become so damn democratized because you can call yourself a filmmaker by buying equipment and owning a an Adobe Premiere editing system or Avid system at home, and all of a sudden you're a filmmaker. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. But, but you are a content creator. You are an experimenter. It does mimic the great things that uh, uh, you know the, the the guys from the French New Wave and the very take cameramen who went from film to to digital capture. I mean, they all prayed for the day that materials were not what would be the cost, but the actual work itself. And when you describe Southie and we sent you, you know, we sent our film to the lab, I'm like, yeah. And, and everybody sort of like, was like, wow, when we moved to digital capture, all of a sudden that went away. And then other costs crept in and the craft didn't become less complicated. It's still 
complicated. But the beauty is we, we, we live in an environment that's a very collaborative one, and a lot of people have to learn their craft and learn it well to execute a great film, right? I mean, and, and, and great ensembles of artists in each department make for a great film and then a great leader, a great writer, great director, then, 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 then leads that, that, that army forward, right? And, and it's, it's remarkable when you think about it because it's such an overwhelming task to herd and put together all these people uh, uh, so much more complicated than being at home and being an author of a book or a, a playwright that stages something for the theater and then never actually interacts with the ensemble. It's a, you, you go from the script to the vision and you see the vision in the script. I mean, you, you have to have a, a, in order to work in our business, you have to have certainly a desire to want to understand the mechanics of business but also want to understand the mechanics of relationships, collaboration, and what creates great art, right? And I think, you know, your relationships that you've had and the people that you've worked with and what you've brought to the table uh, creates great art, right? Well, yeah, um, you know, we're all the sum of everybody who's come before us and everybody that we've interacted with, everybody who taught us, everybody we ever worked with. So I feel like uh, they've all given me something, all the leading ladies, all the co-stars, all the guys, all the directors, everybody, they, they, they left so many gifts, right? So, but in the end, Charlie, I swear, uh, yeah, business, all that stuff, and, but it's really in the end what's, what's, what's going to make the film business continue to be great are the stories that have yet to be told because it's the stories that inspired you as a young guy that w wanted yeah. to be a projectionist and you would go into the theater and you'd have all your reels and you put them up and you knew what you were doing. You were on, on, on opening Pandora's box and, and the minute you hit switch and that light would come on and, and, and that project, that image would be projected on the screen. People are transported into a dream world. And that's that same dream world that I felt when I was a young kid and everybody feels. And that's why I think that, you know, what we're doing uh, is, is going to help save this world. We're, we're going to keep telling stories that are going to entertain people, inspire people, educate people. They're going to make them laugh. They're going to make them cry. They're going to do for other people what they did for us, right? And we just I'm, keep I'm, telling stories. Gonna, right? and, I, and I want to, and as a send-off, and I think this is the moment, because we talked a little bit about it in our, on our, in our last jam session when, when I was on the island. As a, as a movie lover, I mean, this podcast is taking place during a pandemic, so without us mentioning that the world has changed would, 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 would not be correct. I mean, we're in a world where, where cinema has taken, a, <laughs> as we are, I don't even have mine on, I love it. but it's here. But, but I mean, the reality is, what's going to happen to movie theaters? And, and, and what you said to me made me, it first of all made me happy because I want to be happy about the thing that I love, right? But 
you drive into Union Square in New York, which I do on a regular basis going in and out of the city and coming from where I come from, and I pass by the Regal Cinema, and I see closed when it was supposed to be open, and I realize I don't know when that chain theater is going to be open. And every independent cinema, the Angelica, the, the, the Metrograph, the Film Forum, they're all boarded up. I'm like, oh, my God, like, are we coming back? When is the sun going to shine again? And, and, and there are so many people that said, oh, that we forget about it. The world's been taken over by streaming. But I want to end on a happy note with John Shea right now and talk about the future and the day that this all dies down and cinema comes back and your prediction for the future. And this is where I want to end this, this episode. All right, Charlie, I, I, I have a feeling that there's going to be, you know how everything in life goes in cycles. The moon goes in cycles, the sea, the tide goes in, the tide goes out. I believe in the, in the you know, the book of changes, everything. So what's happening, I believe globally, I mean cosmically, galactically, is that we're preparing for a new awakening. I think that this pandemic is going to change the way people think about things, and it's giving all the writers and all the filmmakers a chance to write all these scripts, Charlie. And some of them are going to be so great that they're going to demand to be seen on the big screen, I'm telling you. And that there's going to be a hunger for people to get back together the way we used to gather together in the caves when the storytellers would do the puppet shows again with the fire in the, you know, in the cold at night a uh, 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 hundred thousand years ago. And, and I think we're going to come back stronger than ever, Charlie. I do. Now, yes, there's going to be some changes. And certainly we've seen with the Zoom thing that you and I are doing that this is a new way for us to communicate. But there's, I believe that there's going to be the desire to get together as a community and share a common vision the way we do in only in a movie theater, not at home on our television screen. To gasp, to cry, to laugh together, to be transported together into another dimension, which is only the movies can do, only the live theater can do. And when they come back, we want to be ready for them, man. And I, and I hope you and I are working together. Oh, absolutely we will be. This is the light at the end of the tunnel. And on that note, I want to end with, a, at, at a time like this, at a time that we're all at home uh, uh, waiting for this madness to, to, to someday pass, uh, uh, what you just said is a bit of sunlight in our day. And, uh, and I know for everybody that works in our industry, we, we all pray for the day that, that we get to be in a movie palace again and, uh, and, 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 and watch with, with, with full... Uh, uh, Dolby Atmos and Dolby Stereo Sound and all of the possibilities for cinema viewing in a large audience once again because uh, uh, it's gone and uh, uh, but it, it's neither forgotten nor has it nor has it gone away and uh, I, I wish to end this episode with the idea cinema is the light at the end of the tunnel and thank you so much John Shea for joining me today. This is the longest podcast I've done yet. I knew it would be with you. Uh, I love you with all my heart. Thank you so much. Thank you, Charlie. It was my great honor and pleasure to be with you today. You. I'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.